0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, let's go First Timothy chapter 6, verse 11 is where we find ourselves, where we left off last week, and we are finishing up this journey through this letter from the Apostle Paul to this young pastor named Timothy. And we are going to cover the last little portion of this letter as we've been working through it this past fall. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to use one of the Bibles that you can find in the chair rack in front of you. Again, as we say every week, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to keep that Bible as our gift to you. We'd love for you to read it and come back and be part of this Bible-believing church. And if this isn't the right fit for you, then we we pray that you'd find another Bible-believing church in our area. And we can certainly point you to some that uh, are very faithful and solid, but we're grateful that you're here, and um, we work through books of the Bible, and so if you're feeling like, hey, this is my first time, and they're jumping into this letter that, in fact, they've been working through it, and they're at the end of it now, and I'm going to be behind, don't, don't worry. We will catch you up. It'll make sense. The, just the situation and the context will will become clear to you. So, I'm going to read, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to work our way back through this letter. So, this is a letter reached up here, and there were no glasses. I put them down right here. There we go. This is a letter from from the Apostle Paul, who wrote a good portion of the New Testament to this young pastor. I think we have been spending months in this letter dissecting it, but it's really a letter that was meant to be read in one setting. So, think about, I know we have lots of military guys in here, and Of course, most of you are so young that you don't remember when we actually wrote letters. You get emails now, I guess, when you're in faraway lands and deployed. But how many young army guys in here have received an email from their significant other and like read a couple sentences and stopped (laughs) and come back the next week and read a few more sentences? That's not the way we read letters, is it? Well, that's the way we preach through books of the Bible. But this would be a good thing for you to just read in one setting this afternoon or in the coming coming weeks. So let me read 1 Timothy 6, verses 11 through the end. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, The King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith grace be with you. And what's noteworthy about that last word, you, is it's actually the plural form of the word you, which tells us that this letter was intended for all of us, not just for, for Timothy. It's intended for the church. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Well, Father, as we've prayed already, we thank you for your grace to us, for giving us new life and new mercies I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning that we would hear from you that our affections would be stirred to see afresh the beauty of the gospel. I pray for my friends in this room who are not yet trusting in Christ that you would do what only you can do and give them a new heart so that they can believe. Give them the gift of faith and repentance which we are completely dependent on you for so that they might behold Christ. And Lord, as we gather this morning in this room, we are well aware of our our sister churches in our city that are that are faithfully preaching the gospel and teaching the Bible. We pray for your grace to other Christian Bible-believing churches in our city that you would encourage them and that you'd do your work among them. Help us now as we look at this text in in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I think this this passage that we're ending First Timothy on has really three truths. There's lots of truths embedded in this, obviously, but I want us to look at three truths about the gospel in these 10 or 11 verses that we see. But before we dive into it, I think it might be helpful for us just to step back and and consider just the point of the whole letter that we've been talking about really for months now. Remember that this is a letter from the Apostle Paul to this young pastor, Timothy, and on the surface, it might seem like it is instruction about how the church should be organized and how Timothy, this young pastor, should faithfully discharge his duties as a pastor, and certainly is that. It has practical instructions about who to put in leadership positions in the church and how the church is to care for certain groups of people, widows in particular, and, and all of those things are, are very important, uh, in a sense, practical instruction for Timothy, but really underneath all of that, and, the, and I think the real purpose of this letter, which is not obscure, I think it's very plain, is that Paul is writing to Timothy about how the church should be founded and built around the good news of the gospel. So just to back up a little bit the history of this church the city that Timothy was pastoring in and that the church existed in first Timothy is the city of Ephesus that was a pagan unbelieving, totally non-Christian city, and Paul, on one of his missionary journeys, arrives at Ephesus and sees all of this false worship going on. They were worshiping these Greek gods and had these huge temples. In fact, the temple in Ephesus was one of the wonders of the world at the time, and they were worshiping, in particular, amongst many Greek gods, this one Greek goddess named Artemis And they built this huge temple to her. And there were these blacksmiths that had these businesses where they were making basically little figurines or little bobbleheads of Artemis and other Greek gods. And when Paul brings the gospel to Ephesus, it completely disrupts the economic engine of Ephesus because all of these blacksmiths are becoming Christians and they know now that they can't make bobbleheads of the false god. And so they scrap it all. And the blacksmiths who haven't come to Christ yet are upset. And it, it, it results in a huge upheaval in Ephesus. And so Paul causes this great stir. He stays there for a couple years and then he moves on. And he says to Timothy, now you handle it. You clean up the mess that the gospel has made, basically, for the glory of God. And First and Second Timothy, both of these letters are letters that are meant to instruct Timothy on how to now remain and care for and come alongside the work of the gospel in Ephesus. And so it is all about the good news of the gospel as it comes to bear on a fallen world. And I think the height of this letter, of 1 Timothy, we can we can see it in 1 Timothy 3. We don't have it on the screen, but if you just flip a couple pages over, I think the height of 1 Timothy the whole letter is where Paul says that the church in verse 14 of chapter 3 is the household of God. It's the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so what he's saying is is that we collectively as a church in Ephesus, as Christians, that Timothy is pastoring, and thousands of years later, us, Crosspoint, we exist as a household of God, where the living God dwells, to be a pillar and buttress of the truth, to hold up this truth, this good news about what a holy God has done to reconcile lost people to himself. And friends, that's the point of this this letter. It's the point of the New Testament. It's in fact the point of the Bible. It's the point of everything. What a holy God, who has created everything, Who created a world that rebelled against him, not out of his providence? He knew this was going to happen. It didn't surprise him, but humanity rebelled against God, and our rebellion against God cast us into separation from God, which the Bible calls spiritual death. We are now unable to do anything to make ourselves right with God, but God knowing this and planning for this, sends his son, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, to become a man and to, where all of us have disobeyed, Jesus completely obeys God perfectly, obeys his law, and then lays down his fully human, fully obedient, yet fully divine, eternally holy life on the cross to absorb the wrath of the Father and the punishment for sin for all those that would ever trust in him. And as now, as As we have read earlier from 1 Corinthians 15 and as we have sung about, Jesus is risen from the dead and now is alive and has the keys to death, life, and the grave and commands all people everywhere from every tribe and tongue to turn from trusting in themselves and put their hope in him. And our only hope of this happening is God miraculously intervening on our behalf because we are by nature dead in our sins. And the good news of the gospel that Timothy, that Paul is telling Timothy to drill down and build this church on, is that God is in charge of everything. He planned for everything. He sent his son to redeem all those that would trust in him. And he is risen. He's the victor. He's the king. And now preach this good news and make this good news central to the life of the church because that's how God builds and forms his people And as he builds and forms his people, they then tell others and God continues his great redemptive purpose that he's begun in the beginning. Friends, that's, by the way, that was a really good explanation of the whole point of the Bible. (laughs) There was a word about being haughty in there. Maybe that was a little proud. I don't know. But that's worthy to say amen to. You know what we can say, you know what we can do in this little kind of, middle-class sort of suburban church, we can get a little bit more responsive, amen? amen? All right, thank you very much. I'm half Italian, I grew up the son of a football coach, I, I, like, I like to use my hands, and it's okay to talk, okay, so that's the point of this letter, and he concludes this letter with, with I think, three gospel truths to this young pastor who needs encouragement and strength. Truth number one is the gospel gives grace-filled grit. Now, don't try and say that 10 times fast. It might sort of tie your tongue a little bit. But the gospel gives grace-filled grit. Let me read verses 11 and 12 again. Paul says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. What were these things? Well, I think he's referring, in a sense, to the whole letter and the instruction that he's given him about staying away from certain things. But I think in particular, what's in view here is what immediately precedes verses 11 and 12, which is what we covered last week in verses 3 through 10, where Paul was admonishing Timothy to, uh, to be aware of the 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 love of money and the idolatry of stuff. And so he's saying, don't put your hope in these things. Flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So what I want you to see here is these imperatives in just these first few verses. And, and if you're not aware of what an imperative is, it's just a, it's a grammatical term meaning a command, something that, that the writer is telling us that we must do. So look, just in the first few verses there, flee, pursue, fight, take hold of the eternal life. So just, he orients us here at the beginning of this passage that the Christian life is one that is active. The the message of the gospel is not that Jesus gave you a good start and now if you will meet him halfway things will go well. No, it's that Jesus caused you to pass from death to life and where you were completely unable now you are enabled and now you're alive not to sit back into passive reception and grace but to let that grace infuse us with passion for pursuing, for pursuing God. We've mentioned often here that um, there's a pattern in the New Testament, particularly a pattern in Paul's letters, and it's the pattern of the, in, again, another grammatical term here, but you, you'll follow with me even if, you, even if you didn't do so well in English when you were in high school. The, the pattern of the indicatives always come before the imperatives. And what do I mean by that? Indicative is a grammatical term that is a statement of truth. It's a statement of what has happened. And the imperative is, again, like I mentioned just a moment ago, a command. It's something that we must do in light of what the indicative is. So said a little bit more plainly, the gospel, in particular, the New Testament and Paul's letters, have these patterns that what Jesus has done always comes before what we must do. Do you get that very important distinction? Because if we mix the order there, if we say... That these are the things that we must do before we focus on what Jesus has done that can subtly lead us into a kind of veiled form of legalism where unwittingly we think that the good news of the gospel is God is waiting on us to improve ourselves and if we will do these things whether it be flee these things or pursue these things or fight the good fight of faith or take hold of eternal life then we will unwittingly think that the gospel gospel is a kind of carrot that God dangles out there in front of us if we will do such and such and such to get to a point where we are able to grab the carrot. And that, it feels kind of true, doesn't it? But it's absolutely a lie. If we look back on the whole a letter and we in fact look at the whole message of the new testament we realize as i said in the summary before we even began that the good news of the gospel is not that if we try hard god will meet us halfway but that we are dead we are completely unable we are like lazarus in john 11 in a tomb decaying spiritually and the good news of the gospel is that Jesus comes up to the tomb of our spiritual death and gives us life. He doesn't ask us to cooperate. He doesn't tell us, if you do these things, I will meet you halfway. He says to every sinner who's dead in their sins, whom he intends to save, get up. And they get up. And What I want us to see then is then we get up not to a woe's me, I can't do anything now, but we get up to life. We get up by this message of grace that doesn't just forgive past sin, but infuses us with the Holy Spirit so that we might with grit pursue God and become who we are intended to be in Christ. I don't have this, um, I, don't, I didn't intend to read the scripture, but I'm gonna rely on the dexterity and the deftness of those in the tech booth to pull it up quickly. And it's in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. One of my favorite verses that explains so much in the Bible. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. Listen to this. Hebrews 10 and verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Okay, (laughs) let's just think about that. You know, I do this a lot with this verse because it's so mesmerizing to me. For by a single offering, meaning Jesus's atoning, sufficient, satisfactory, substitutionary, Wrath bearing, victorious work on the cross, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his glorious, victorious resurrection. For by a single offering, he has perfected past tense for all time. It's fixed those who are being sanctified. Well, it doesn't seem to make sense unless this is written by the Holy Spirit. Why would I need to be sanctified if I've already been perfected? Do you see this? And this is the tension of the New Testament. This is the tension that we see in verses 11 of 12 of First Timothy 6 that grace comes not to just sort of give us this one-time hit so that we might passively just kind of get beat up for the rest of our lives until Jesus comes, but grace comes, the good news of the gospel, the life-giving power of a sovereign God comes, hits a dead heart, makes it alive. In that moment, that life, that soul is deemed righteous, justified, and in fact, Past tense, glorified, perfected for all time according to Hebrews 10. And then that person who is already made right in Christ can never be more loved by God the Father because of what Jesus has done now begins the grace-filled, gritty work of living out the implications of their sanctification and justification in Christ. Friends, that's the Christian life. The grace-filled grit, and so let's just land it here, and let's just say that if you are wrestling with some debilitating sin, and, and, and to some degree, all of us are, right? That the grace of the gospel doesn't just come to forgive it, but to empower you to fight against it in that moment. To pursue righteousness, Jesus has not died on the cross so that you might passively sit by, but he comes to infuse us with spiritual grace, the Holy Spirit that abides in us, to fight so that we might become who we already are in him. The gospel gives grace-filled grit. Secondly, the gospel has a goal in mind. Let me read. Verses 13 through 16, again, the gospel has a goal in mind. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we might ask in verse 14, what is the commandment there that Timothy is supposed to keep? unstained and free from reproach until the second coming of Jesus. Well, I think in the context of this letter that what Paul has in mind there in the commandment is not one of necessarily the Ten Commandments, but he's, he's speaking about his commandment, his mission that he's giving Timothy, has given Timothy. And I think we see that in the first chapter of the letter in 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting around verse 3, where he says, listen, stay in Ephesus and charge certain people not to devote themselves to bad doctrine. But essentially he's telling Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, plant the gospel. This is the work to which God has called you. So I'm I'm commanding you, I'm imploring you to do this. And so he's saying you, he's saying to Timothy here, stay with it, young man, until Jesus comes back. Verse 15, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. I think that the goal that the gospel has in mind here is obviously the imminent return of Jesus. History is marching toward an ultimate goal. And that is the time when every person who has ever lived will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And as we have said many times, there are only two types of people in this world. There may be some external differences that seem to divide us. And isn't our, I mean, come on, let's pray for our country. Our country is divided, isn't it? And some of us may feel these divisions very, very, very fiercely. But, friends, all of these things can obscure us from this great eternal reality that essentially we aren't white people and black people or Republicans or Democrats or Army and Navy or. game's coming up in a couple weeks, and please pray that we end our 14-year national nightmare. (laughs) There are only two types of people in this world, those who have been made alive by God's sovereign grace and those who reject God and are left in their rebellion. And the church exists... Not merely to help us live more pragmatic, functional lives here and now. But the church exists to hold up this great news that Jesus is coming again. And there are all sorts of implications, yes, about how we should live and be better husbands and manage our finances better and work with our, you know, fight against anger and all of these things. Yes, I'm not saying in any way that Christianity or the gospel or the Bible and its teachings are not practical. Of course they are. But we miss the whole point of our existence if we don't have ever present before us. What Paul puts before Timothy in his ministry is that Jesus is coming again. And what you are doing is not conducting a self-help clinic every Sunday when you gather God's people together. But you are reminding them that the only sovereign, the King of Kings, is coming again good would it be if we helped one another do this or that, even if it's good things like be better husbands or wives or parents or managers of this or that, if we miss the most important news about the fact that Jesus is coming again and you must be made right with him. Oh, that we would be a church that Always has in front of our hearts and minds the imminent return of Jesus. Now, let me just confess something. This is honestly one of the hardest things for me about the Christian life, remembering this, living in the light of eternity. It's hard me. Maybe I'm just, is this a safe place? Can I be a weak Christian in front of (laughs) several hundred of my closest friends? Um, It's not because I don't believe it. I believe everything that the Bible says. I believe that God became flesh and dwelt among us. I think there's some hard things to, hard truths in the Bible to understand and articulate One being the timelessness of God, right? He had no beginning. Another being the Trinity, three in one. Another being that God, the Son, eternally, God, the Son, became really a man. How how do do you explain that, right? That he, I believe that. I believe that. I believe he died on the cross. I believe he rose again. He was dead and now is alive. I believe that he is seated at the right hand of the Father. I believe that he will come and that he will finally and fully vanquish all evil. He will consummate his kingdom and everything will be to the end of his glory forever and ever and ever. But I confess that I spend most of my week as a kind of functional atheist oftentimes. I have this category in my mind that Jesus is coming again. I know this to be true and I believe every word in this Bible, but I am so easily disturbed by the stress and strain of this temporal life. What?
1: My child
0: didn't get chosen for the whatever? (gasps) How will the evangelistas function What? That person doesn't think as highly of me as I think of me? (laughs) How will I navigate through the week? Right? And in that moment, this doctrine that I have floating 30,000 feet above my head just rarely seems to land in the stress and the tyranny of the urgent of my life. I don't know what to do with that other than to just confess it and bring it before the Lord often and say, God, form me more into Christlikeness. Mature me. I, I feel like such a, a spiritual babe all the time. Help me with this. Help me. And I think that's part of why we gather together, isn't it? Because we're a church and we are all... Like, I think, I think what churches are is it is like the merry band of gospel amnesiacs, (laughs) isn't it? I mean, we all believe it, I think, and if you don't believe it yet, we're glad that you're here. This is just a holy huddle. We're really glad that you're here. In fact, one of the purposes that we're here is to hold up the truth so that you too can come to behold and believe and trust in Jesus like we have. We, we, We really pray that you believe that, but we want you to know what you're getting into. You're getting into not a group of people that have everything together, but a group of people who forget daily who they are. When I was a kid, I've told you before about my fascination with the Cold War when I was a child growing up, like in the late 70s and early 80s, and I was so fearful about nuclear war with Russia. And in the late seventies, you remember Brezhnev? Oh, you guys don't remember like that Soviet dictator had like those eyebrows that were about the size of Montana. And I was just fat like, who is this creepy dude? And then Gorbachev had that birthmark and I was just freaked out by all that. And then there were like all these nuclear war movies, you know, Patrick Swayze and Red Dawn, you know, Russian soldiers. Parachuting into schoolyards and snatching kids. I mean, it was just terrible times. It was just, I was fearful. And then I had an old brother who played on those fears. It was really, it was really just, <laughs> we lived on the Mexican border, and he would say, you know, a good place for the Russians to come would be right through the border, which is about a mile that way. Um, was, anyway, I'm sorry. I'm, but I remember there was this documentary on like nuclear fallout. And the dangers of radioactive material when I was a kid that I watched, which, again, my parents should probably have never let me watch. My dad took me to see Jaws when I was about eight. Haven't got in the water past my knees since. (laughs) Have not. And I watch. I think, for the past 20 years, I've watched just about every episode of Shark Week, and I am sitting in a landlocked house. I mean, I am hundreds of miles away from the coast watching Shark Week sweating. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's veering off into like a self-help counseling session. (laughs) But I remember watching this documentary as a kid about the effects of nuclear radiation. And it was some lab or experimental facility of the U.S. government. And they had these scientists that were working with this material. And I can remember they had to get kitted up in this big suit you know you can just picture like some big hazmat suit from the late 70s or early 80s and they'd go in there and work with the material and then they'd come back into this holding room where they would spray them down with what looked like the fire hose like you know like putting out a fire like you'd see in a fire truck just hosing these people down in these suits and then they'd have to strip down and go through into another little chamber where they'd have to kind of detox from And you know, that's kind of what it's like to be a Christian in the world. We live in a radioactive, incredibly dangerous culture all the time that is exalting itself against everything that this word teaches. And our life together as a local church, our interaction with one another, our fellowship with one another, I think is intended to be a kind of detox chamber so that when we come together in this room on Sundays to sing about Jesus and to revel in his word or when we gather in community groups and living rooms across the city and all over our area as Christians from Crosspoint and other churches gather together, life together in the community of God, the local church is meant to be a kind of detox chamber so that the truth that we speak to one another serves to be like that big fire hose washing the radiation of our culture off of us. And so I don't know how to deal with my functional atheism, my functional forgetting of the gospel. I don't know how to deal with my gospel amnesia other than to confess it to the Lord, to you, and for us to keep gathering and linking arms because Jesus is coming back. And then finally, truth number three the gospel grounds us in now so as to increase our joy then. Let's do this quickly. Look, look at verses 17 through 21. As for the rich in this present age, and do not go where people go, like, ah, oh, yeah, now he's going to dog on the rich. No, no, we're, most of us in this room are rich. I read something about world wealth a few years ago. And if you have a, checkbook, checking account, and a refrigerator, which I realize not everybody in this room may have, but if you have a checking account and a refrigerator, you are very likely in the top 6% of world wealth. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. I think he means there the gospel. Guard the gospel. Guard this news. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. So what I think is going on in this text as we conclude is that Paul is not condemning wealth at all. He's condemning setting our hope in wealth as if it can provide what only God can provide. Most of us in this room are, comparatively speaking, rich. Rich. And Paul is saying to Timothy and to us, don't set your hope in your possessions. God has given us these things so that we might enjoy them and not worship them. And God has given us great blessing, many of us, so that we might be a display of the generosity of the gospel and in turn model the graciousness of the Trinity and give what we have been given away. And I think what Paul is orienting us to here is a motivation for the Christian life and living. Now, have you ever heard that phrase? And I think it's not, I understand what we mean when we say it. But have you ever heard it said about a person that they are so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good? We've probably heard that before. I think I've even said that before. But I, think, I think we all understand what we mean when we say that. It's maybe a person who's kind of so super spiritual or just kind of, hard to relate to, that they're really not very fruitful in this life. But I I think Paul takes it in another direction. He's saying, be so consumed with heaven, be so consumed with the treasure that you are storing up and not the treasure that moth and rust destroy, that you can finally be of some earthly or some earthly good because focusing on then and being consumed with then is the only way that you can truly become fruitful and faithful now. Do you see that? I want to just read as we conclude some scriptures that I think will help us think about that day and how It will help us to live more happily and productive in this day. And just note the heavenwardness. I just made up a word, and it's a good one. The heavenwardness of Scripture. Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad... For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus does not say hang in there. Because eventually you'll get yours. Here and now. And I will smoke those jokers like a cheap cigar. And you'll be vindicated next election cycle. Or whatever. That's not what he says. He says... I'm going to give you grace so that you can have some grit and there's coming a day when the one true sovereign will make it all right. Romans 8 verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Now, <laughs> When he says the sufferings of this present time, that either means all suffering for all of God's people or it means nothing at all. It's not like, you know, this applies to maybe half of you that are going through some sort of, you know, really tough things. But it doesn't apply to you Christians who are in Iran who are being persecuted by these wicked terrorists. You know, that's a little out of the sphere of this verse. No! He's saying that, all of the suffering of all of God's people throughout all of time is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Friends, I don't have a category for that other than to say how great must eternity be that it can't be compared to the worst atrocity here and now. Hebrews 13 Verses 13 and 14. Therefore, let us go to him, meaning Jesus, outside the camp. And that's referring to the fact that Jesus was crucified outside of the camp, outside of the city. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city. But we seek the city that is to come. And finally, 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Note the heavenwardness of verse 4 to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, meaning the heavenwardness of your hope, you rejoice now. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The gospel grounds us in the now, so that we might have our joy increase then. As we wait for the return of our King. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. The team is going to come back and lead us in some worship. We're going to stand. We're going to respond to God with prayer, with a song. If you're, if you're not a believer or you're, maybe you're a young Christian and a lot of what I've said has confused you or you feel like, whoa, this is way more. I, was just, I just accepted an invitation to church. What's going on here? I'd love to talk. In fact, I will be this today. I'll be the pastor at the table out right by our resource room, we'd love to give you a copy of this book, Who is Jesus? We'd love to speak with you about what it means to follow him. If you are sensing that God is making you alive, that you have not previously, but now you know you need to trust in Jesus, I'd love to speak to you about doing that today. Or maybe you can find a Christian friend that you came with that would be more than willing to speak with you. Every person in this room that knows Jesus is equipped to tell you about Jesus and help you pray to trust in Jesus. And the rest of us are going to worship, and we're going to sing some songs, and then Reynolds is going to come back and lead us in just a scripture where he's going to read, and and then we'll, we'll leave. But let's live in light of this great news this morning as we respond to him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you do what only you can do with your word. May your Holy Spirit now rush through this room like a mighty rushing wind. And may you renew and reorder the affections of your people. May you cure us from our gospel amnesia. And may you bring to life people who have been previously dead in their sins by giving them a new heart so that they can behold and believe in Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would do this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.